So what do you got in here, rocks? Are you kidding? When I was your age, I would lug 50 pounds of ice up five, six flights of stairs. So what? So what? So let's dance! <laughs> privacy, noise, statutes, you know, I, I plan to go to law school after I graduated, but, uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs stitch diggers, too. Nice try. <laughs> Welcome to episode 82 of Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman again with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Waldman. In this episode, we'll be doing a draft of the best songs of 1980. And like in our prior recent episodes, we'll each draft five songs apiece via a snake draft. The first pick for 1980 goes to Larry, followed by Keith, and then me. And we'll reverse the order for round two and so on for five rounds. And we'll also have links to associated playlists and the notes to the episode. And a reminder, we can pick multiple songs from the same band, but they can't be from the same album. The intro song was picked by Larry, who's going to say a few words about it. So the clip that we played in the beginning was from the famous Caddyshack, which probably all three of us could quote every single line of. When I was thinking about opening songs, I did consider this, but then I dismissed it because I thought... You know what? Somebody could pick Journey as one of the songs. And sure enough, Scott did, of course, have timing for it. But then I was I was out with Keith and he's like, ah, fuck it. Just pick it anyway. So we did. That was, of course, Journey's Any Way You Want It. And we, uh, we played a longer clip after that as well. So, I mean, what can I say? This is from one of the classic comedies of all time. And it comes at a pivotal scene because... It really cements the rivalry between Roddy Dangerfield and Ted Knight. So, because he was violating his personal privacy and his noise statutes. It does have a pretty epic guitar solo, which is not in the movie, but we did play the clip of. Yeah, and some epic vocals too. That's arguably Journey's greatest rocker, their biggest hit to date. It was actually on my draft board, but I'm the Journey fanboy among us, so no surprise there. The clip is hilarious. You can't really do it justice with just the audio. You, know, you have to see Rodney, Ted Knight, and the whole thing. You got to see the dancing. The dancing is pretty epic. Most yeah. people, I think, can visualize it uh, having yeah. seen it. Anybody who's seen Caddyshack knows exactly what scene that is and can totally picture it. So I think we're okay with it. All right. So general thoughts on 1980, guys. Tough year. Lots of songs that should be picked. Lots of songs that I think we are going to pick. 
tough year in that I don't have any sense of how this draft is going to go. I literally have no idea. And there's a couple of artists where I think you can use the rule of you're allowed to pick more than one song by the artist because of the way that songs were released or not on the right, not on the same album. And then there's a couple where there's really tough picks between songs from the same album. So that's why I have no idea how this draft is going to go. I can see us all staying in our respective lanes mm-hmm. and going five picks just where we don't have any over <laughs> where we don't have, we're each sort of consistent while we're picking. There's a lot to unpack in, in 80 because, you know, there's sort of a, a genre proliferation occurring. We got, you know, our, the start of new wave of British heavy metal in 1980. The other thing we have in 80, right, is you have a, a lot of different genres sort of coming together under the disco sort of umbrella still, right? In the 80s, you've got similarities across genres because they're all sort of evolving a little bit, that uh, dance beat and, and that kind of sound. So Disco is pretty much dead at this point. Like, this is the last gasp of disco. Yes and no, right? Yes, in that disco itself was dying. But yeah, it's evolving. Disco is showing itself in other genres. Right, Queen and the Stones and Blonde, right, and Blondie, yeah. and like everybody sort of and Diana Ross has a sound that's um, at least songs that are that are inf- certainly influenced and in, in, in Bowie, you know, bringing in that that kind of sound. But yeah, eighty will be interesting because again, you also have a lot of sort of mainstream rock. You wanted to go arena rock and yacht rock. It's it's there's. Uh, 80 is a lot of directions you can go. Punk, post-punk. Um, it'll be interesting. My thoughts on 1980, it's a very strong year overall. There was a good mix of stuff from alternative to hard rock and metal to AOR and classic rock. Classic soul is fading, but there are also emerging trends like world music with artists like Peter Gabriel, Talking Heads, and Paul Simon. There's an increased use of electronics as well. And the more mechanical drums and keyboard sounds, which date certain songs to the 80s, much like how certain psychedelic songs were previously clearly tied to the 60s. We had the first album from the band who would become the biggest band in the world over the next few decades. And conversely, we had Old Blue Eyes having his last major hit with what would essentially become the theme song for our home state of New York, or more specifically, New York City. Sadly, in that same city, on December 8th, 1980, there was a shocking, tragic murder of John Lennon right on the heels of his successful comeback album with Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy. But though the year ended on a major down note, overall 1980 was a very good year for music. So without further ado, Larry, what's the best song of 1980? I'm pretty sure that there's no drama or uh, no confusion as to which band I'm going to be picking. There might be some discussion as to which is the right song, but I think this is the song that all three of us would have picked from the band that all three of us would have picked. We're all huge fanboys. Unfortunately, this band never got a chance to really, or at least its leader never really got a chance to see its uh, success, although the rest of his bandmates did as they morphed into New Order and help dominate the dance and new wave scene in the 1980s. Giveaway. Dead giveaway.
So that was Level Terrace Apart by Joy Division, not on an album. So I think we've mentioned before that Joy Division's most famous or maybe most influential or best songs are, are almost all of them are not album tracks. So this was a single that came out. Level Terrace Apart has so many layers and, and so much depth to it. And it gets me every time. If I hear it on the radio, if I'm listening to it, it comes up on a playlist because I probably have it on like eight different playlists. If I'm just listening to Joy Division, I always hear and feel different things each time. First and foremost, obviously, it's it's about band leader Ian Curtis's life and relationship with his wife falling apart. It's about his struggles with epilepsy. Some people have read it as a ironic twist on Captain and Tennille's Love Will Keep Us Together. But this is like Joy Division, right? It's more angsty. It's more atmospheric. There's some menace to it. There's anger in it. There's wistfulness in it. Stephen Morris, the drummer for Joy Division and New Order, said at one point he was called in at like, I don't know, in the middle of the night to redo his snares. And he said he was so pissed that he remembers playing like angrily. And it does feel ang like the snares feel like there's something forceful, more forceful going on behind it. And again, I don't know if that's just because of the way that I think about the entire song, but it's such a powerful song. And Almost every greatest songs list that you'll see has this someplace. At one point, I think NME in England put this as the greatest song of all time. So I don't know if I would say it's the greatest song of all time, but it's definitely in my probably top four or five songs of all time. Although it depends on the day sometimes of Joy Division. You can go back and forth. I almost picked a different song, but I think we all agreed this is the right one to be able to go with. He is one of the great drummers of his genre, maybe the best drummer within his genre. And it's sort of uh, ironic a little bit, right, that Love Terrace Park became their sort of anthem because it's not, it's not the best representation of Joy Division's sound overall, right? Uh, yeah. It sort of stands out. Maybe it's a, it's a nod to the direction that they could have gone, although Closer probably has other. Closer and you mentioned atmospheric, but the uh, other so the other single from from that time period were also sort of indications of you know how they were transitioning from yeah uh, what they were you know a year before with unknown pleasures and, and into I don't know is it is it closer or is it clo closure <laughs> I always think of it as um, closer not closer not like not like you're the closer right. you, just, you just closed a big right. sale yeah. I always figured it as closer. Ian needed to be closer. He just, he had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, but it was, unfortunately, it was the closer. Uh, it was the closer. Yeah. Through that career, yeah. So we debated Level Terrace Apart and Atmosphere in our 80s song tournament, if you guys remember. And Atmosphere actually won, which <laughs> I was actually happy about because to me, it's the more haunting and memorable song overall. But Level Terrace Apart was certainly the bigger song, and it's a fantastic song in its own right. Right from the start, Larry, you mentioned those drums, right? You hear it right from the get-go, and the keyboards, of course, are very prominent as well. And then, of course, you have Ian Curtis's vocals, which are so distinctive. Yeah, Atmosphere, obviously, was the other song that I was considering picking at number one. And I, I have to admit, I was swayed by the fact that we picked Atmosphere in our previous tournament. Yeah, I was thinking along those same lines. And I just want to reiterate that, though they were literally short-lived, I do think that in terms of the quality and originality of their output and their massive influence on future artists, they were an all-time band. They really were. And if you ask most people what their signature song was, 
most people would reply with love will tear us apart. So it is a fitting number one pick. It's the band that's the most pop-friendly and accessible, but it still has that darkness, which made their music so fresh and unsettling. It is what is engraved on Ian's tombstone. Which is fitting. Just a shout-out to Decades, the closer on Closer, which is a fantastic song. I may be picking Decades. You yeah. can still pick it. If you weren't going to pick it, it was worth a shout-out. Heath, you're up. I think I know what you got here, but let's see. Maybe it'll be Joy Division. It might be Joy Division. I wasn't going to do Atmosphere because you played it before. I think it is my favorite Joy Division song. Why don't we compromise? We'll add it to the playlist, but we won't draft it. For Atmosphere? Yeah. That's good. I like that. Now you totally thrown him off. Now he doesn't know what to do. I'm going to go Decades. I wasn't ready to say it. You know, with loved ones, you're never ready to say goodbye, so. That's fair. Break this one out. He just totally fucked up my draft board. Open the shed and slap it up, song has always had a heaviness to me, right? Like, there's just such an influence there. Like, so much of music just, like, exploded from what they did in that such short period of time. Decades, to me, maybe the most New Order song from them in that time period, as they were writing songs that New Order actually did uh, record. There's just a majesticness to what they did. To me, it's, it's a more haunting song than Love, but you know, I get that love is a more universal word and song, <laughs> um, but I freaking love that. I love that song, man. I love it. Did, did you hear? Um, did you hear some Tame Impala while you were listening to that? I was going to say I hear a little Tame Impala. I also I, I don't want to give it away because I hear a song 
that I'm pretty sure is on all of our draft boards too. In it too, in terms of like the ethereal haunt, I mean, you guys are both nodding your head because you know exactly what song I'm talking about. In the like the haunting gothic etherealness of it, but the dichotomy between that and the claustrophobic percussion that's more new yeah. wave is just what makes it so unique. And it's a closer, right? Not to make a bad pun. Yeah. But. Closer and closer. Closer and closer. closer. Yeah, that's a guy staring into the abyss. Yeah. It's coldly elegaic. It possesses a remarkable power and beauty. It's almost ambient at times, but it also has a heaviness to it. There's that dichotomy, which makes it really interesting. And yeah. it's just one of those songs that sticks with you. It's like one of those like artsy movies that just lingers with you like, for for weeks, right? Because yeah, totally. it, just, it does something to you that you're not expecting to feel. Yep. And I do think that we're going to revisit that concept of a dichotomy between either sounds within a song or sometimes what the music sounds like and what the lyrics are actually telling you. So at least there's a few songs that I've got on my list that, that definitely have that. We got the first one, too, since the Beach Boys. That's right. And Joy Division had a first song and a closer in a prior episode in 79. So this is the second episode where they had two songs. Then again, they were only around for like two years. Yeah. Chronologically, you're getting a lot of Joy Division going on. Yeah, exactly. This is the end of the road for Joy Division, so we have to get it in now. Yeah. Yeah, but we certainly have some new water coming, I'm pretty sure. As for what pick number three is? I know it. This legendary song needs no introduction. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. Oh, have no fear for atomic energy. Because none of them can stop at the time. How long shall they kill our prophets? soulful gem you just heard was Redemption Song by Bob Marley and the Wailers, which closed out his Uprising album, and at the time Bob Marley's career on a high note by modestly declaring all I ever had is songs of freedom. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Despair, brilliant folk ballad featuring Bob and his lone acoustic guitar was arguably his greatest song yet. His primary competition, of course, being the live version of No Woman, No Cry in 1975. This made his subsequent cancer-related death all the more tragic, since he obviously had so many more great songs and messages to give. Fortunately, millions of people have since helped sing Bob Marley and the Wailers' Songs of Freedom and Love 
of Ja, Ganja, and most importantly, life itself. Bob Molly was awesome. I don't have a huge amount to add other than this is such a departure from what most people think of when they think of reggae or they think of Bob Marley. Not that they don't recognize this as a, clearly a Bob song, but it's literally, like you said, Scott, it's just him, an acoustic guitar, one of his great vocals, and it's made all the more meaningful knowing that this is after his cancer diagnosis and that this might have been his swan song. Also referencing the words of Marcus Garvey, too, which was a huge influence in Bob's thinking. But even beyond that, just the, the message is so universal that the only person who can really emancipate your mind and your your thought and your self-worth is yourself. So phenomenal song. Again, I think we had said in the beginning a few times, there are lots of songs that I don't even, I, like, I almost hate to say we have to pick because it makes it, like, sometimes I feel like we have to pick a song because we don't really like it, but we feel like we should pick it. This one we had to pick because how could we not have picked, like, between the three of us, how, there's no way this song was not getting picked. Yeah. Songs of Freedom, right? It's Bob telling a story um, that resonates for him, for his fan, you know, his people, his fans. It's quite an outgoing message that he's that he's delivering. So, yeah, it's freaking awesome. Yeah, it's a universal message, and he was a universal messenger. And I think we said before, Bob Marley may be the most beloved musical artist in the world in terms of who doesn't like Bob Marley, right? I don't know. You got to be a really big hater to not love Bob Marley. Let me put it this way. The other day, I was driving my dad back to the train station, and Bob Marley came out, and he's like, I love this song. And I'm like, I didn't even know you liked Bob Marley. He's like, of course I like Bob Marley. Like, how can you not like it? And then we turned it up, and then, because it was on, like, something on Sirius, we then switched to Spotify so that we could just play Bob Marley. So, shout out to my dad for... Loving Bob Marley. Yeah, your dad's showing his good taste. Yep. All right. So we're going to move on to song number four. Keith probably knows what this is going to be. I think I might know what it's going to be. This next song. <laughs> what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> this next song is from the first album of one of the greatest heavy metal bands of all time. And my personal favorite. Keith's pissed. But he knew it wasn't coming back to him. Come on. Of course. There are th three songs that I didn't pick clips to that I put on my list because I didn't think I was going to have a chance to pick them. This was one of them. But one of them, I, I don't know. I, I might have a shot now. And the clip's a little long, but it's a long song, and it deserves a long clip.
That was Phantom of the Opera by Iron Maiden. In my opinion, the best and most epic song from the Paul Diano era, which spanned their first two albums, both of which were excellent, especially the self-titled first one. Early Maiden was definitely more punk and less epic than the later Bruce Dickinson era, but this seven-plus-minute multi-section masterpiece is an epic track in every way. Above all else, it's an exemplary showcase for the band's tight musicianship. The guitar playing is phenomenal. You get Thin Lizzy-like harmonized guitars, more hard-edged guitar parts, and excellent soloing. As Maiden proves to be a rare band who can deliver epic songs that aren't overly long or indulgent. And P.S. Check out the live version at the Rainbow in 1980 on YouTube. It's a great video. Also, more than any piano song, this one points away towards the more epic-minded approach of the Bruce Dickinson years. But for me, this is still a top five Iron Maiden song. So I totally knew you were going to pick this song. It was one of those songs that I didn't pick a clip for. The middle section was obviously the one that I knew you would pick. I mean, I do like Dickinson Maiden better, and I like the more epic Maiden better, like the mid-80s. But this is the best song off their their first album, so this is a great pick, and I, I knew this was going to get picked. I figured one of the two of you would pick it. He's about to defend the Deanna era. My next pick was going to be Maiden, but it wasn't going to be this song. Really? What's oh. going to be? Scott, what song was I going to pick? It's going to be Prowler. Walking through the city. Oh, so good. Maybe it's still my favorite Maiden song. Just because it's a like it's the first song on the first album. It's so goddamn raw. The guitar is killer in that track. Uh, Prowler's a great way to kick it off, for sure. It's, it's just a sick song. You feel like you're in danger, right? <laughs> right? Like it's it's that kind of the uh, that kind of mood that it creates from the inception of, of the album. And again, it sort of kicks off Maiden in a way. And the album cover kind of reinforces that. Yeah, the whole, they transformed under Bruce, but there was a raw dirtiness to Paul and, and the boys back back then that was a different band. Right? It was a different band, let's be honest. They had a lot of the same strengths, though. Great musicianship. Right? Yeah, Steve Harris's yeah. bass playing, cool storytelling. Yeah, it was that dual guitar attack. But again, there's just a grittiness, right, to... To, and again, they show that they can do epic with Paul as well, right? It was just a different, yeah. it had a different bombast, right? It wasn't, wasn't arena rock. It was, you know, it was, uh, pool hall rock, you know. And the thing about Maiden is they were metal, but they were melodic. They had catchy songs. And that's something I think that heavy metal lost somewhere along the way to an extent as it got heavier and heavier. This is heavy metal, but it can appeal to non-metal heads, in my opinion. It's almost like hard rock as much as metal. I mean, that's kind of the thing, though. Even though I know we're talking about the, you know, the new wave of, of British metal, this feels more like hard rock to me. So to get into that, the new wave of British heavy metal was this movement of bands at around that time that was not big at the time, but kind of became more, I think, legendary later on as guys like Lars Ulrich would extol the virtues of this movement and cover some of the songs. So Maiden was one of the bands. Early Def Leppard was another one. Saxon was another one. Diamond Head was another one. These are kind of legendary bands for the hardcore metalhead that, aside from Leopard and Maiden, most people don't know about. So just a little yeah. bit of background on that. They were the bands who influenced the bands. That's right. Right. Which is, yeah. which is how I get it. But again, like if you think about it compared to what I think about metal now or even metal over the last like 
God, now I'm going to date myself like 20 to 25 years. It's not. It's more hard rock. But at the time, it was metal. Yeah. All right. On to the next hey, pick. Keith, you are the And I can't go mating to stay around. Yeah, because you can't say that's definitely better than Phantom. His greatest power isn't as much as you love it. I'm going to pick a song. And I wasn't expecting to pick it. I don't have a clip for it. So, Sky, you're going to have to to help me out, or, or Larry. I'm sure it's on your boards. Let's go once in a lifetime. I didn't pick a clip because I knew one of you guys would pick it. Not only did I not pick a clip, I picked a different song off the album. The first one, Born on the Punches. That's my favorite one, too. But yeah, I think it's a once in a lifetime is a hit and very representative of the band and a great song in its own right. There's more imagery with Once in a Lifetime, right? It's... Part of that's with the video. That's because of the video. But the lyrics, too. The thing about Born on the Punches is, is we can probably talk about the Stone Roses for a long time after we play the, after we play the clip. It's just that rhythm, man. It's so relentless. Yeah. centerpiece of the album. There's a Joy Division-esque level that they reach in this album. And the influence of this album, you know, really is, again, another one of those where the net that it casts is really, really wide. It influenced a lot of things that came from it. The song has brilliant lyrics. It's got imagery. It makes you think. I know we could have gone in, in a different direction. Well, for that album, which is Born on the Punches, which is more sort of the driving, monotonous sort of rhythm that just is repetitive, but in an awesome, right, in an awesome way that sets the stage for the album. But Once in a Lifetime is just a brilliant, brilliant song. I totally agree. It's a brilliant song, phenomenal song. The album is an all-timer. I mean, I don't think Remain in Light actually did that well when it came out, like, commercially. It was revered, but it didn't, I don't think it did that well. And yes, this was the, the biggest hit from it, the biggest song. Everyone remembers it because of the video. I didn't pick it, not because I don't like it or because I don't think it's a great song. I just, Born Under Punches is like, it's so different and so unique. And it has a great name because it does. It is like getting hit in the face. I mean, the, the polyrhythms, it's so disorienting especially for an opening track. I can't even imagine being in 1980, getting this album, being a Talking Heads fan, and hearing this as the first track, being like, what what, what, what just happened? I don't understand what's going on. Like, it's so different. And I know you didn't mean it like this, but saying like it's there's like a monotony to it or that, you know, it's, it's relentless, 
It is, but it's more of like relentless in almost like a schizophrenic, like paranoid way. And, you know, David Byrne's vocals in it, they're like edgy and biting and like angry, which fits the rhythm of it. So I know I'm talking more about Born Under Punches than I am about, uh, you know, <laughs> but they're both such great songs from an album. I mean, if nothing else, you should listen to Remain in Light because there's so much going on in it. It's such a step forward for them. Yeah, I made I reference to Fool's Gold by Stone Roses. Is yeah. Of, uh, you know, very much for- very, very and also much. where you could pick that song, but there are other songs on the, the album that are more obvious. Yeah. Remain in Light is an amazing album, especially side one. Born on the Punches is just so creative, intense, and funky. The Great Curve is amazing. It has that sick Adrian yeah. Bellu guitar solo. Cross Eyed um, Great. Cross Eyed and Painless, another fantastic song. Side two is more atmospheric. It's more of a grower kind of side, but also really good in its own way. The last song, The Overlord, a very Joy Division ish song. Yeah. Uh, as far as Once in a Lifetime, in terms of representing the band, their quirkiness and utter strangeness, their funkiness, their catchiness, how unconventional they were, and how improbably pretty their songs could be as well. This one checks every box, so it makes perfect sense to pick it. And like you said, Keith, the lyrics are great. They're so relatable. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't wondered, how did I get here at certain points in their life, right? And as we mentioned, also being a very visual band, the music video for the song is really memorable and great as well. All right. So it's up to me. I, I have to confess, I wrote the song down, but I did not pick a clip from it because I was positive, positive that Scott was going to pick it. Check your text. No, I saw it. Thank you. So Scott graciously gave me his clip. You have the number one pick. There's some songs where you're just like, yeah, I'm not going to. I didn't think this was going to be drafted by me, Cliff. We already established that Keith was the number one fanboy of this guy. I know. That's why, I mean, I was positive after Keith kind of upended the draft with decades. Then I I, I wasn't really sure because I knew for a fa- I knew that Scott was going to pick Iron Maiden. But then I thought that you were also going to pick this song. So I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm a little thrown off by the whole thing. But I'm not upset, so... All right, so Larry's the number one fanboy. If, if you remember, I didn't submit Ashes as one of my 80s songs for uh, for that track. Back then, I don't think you were quite in your... That was a mistake, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you were wrong for that. So, yes, I think it's fairly obvious that we're going yet again with David Bowie. <laughs>
So in, in some respects, a sequel to a song we played in our last podcast, although chronologically it's not the same, but that was Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie, referencing Major Tom, who despite never making it back to Earth, apparently is now a junkie because he's like stuck in space and it's not getting back. So what else are you going to do, right? We've talked a lot, a lot about David Bowie, but we've also talked about the fact that, you know, his constant ability to reinvent himself and to continue to change and I don't want to say morph because there's always still a recognizable part to how he's doing things but his ability to continue to evolve is probably a better way to say that this you get a song where he's entering a new decade but he's clearly taking some of the lessons of the Berlin trilogy listening to some of the stuff that's coming out here now and kind of turning it into something brand new. So so this is off of Scary Monsters and Super Creeps in 1980. No more Brian Eno, right? This was Tony Visconti, right, Scott? Yeah, it's a really good album, too. You yeah. also had Robert Fripp. Well, I almost feel like Robert Fripp's part of, like, the David Bowie, like, house band in, like, the 70s and 80s, right? Well, there were many guitarists. He was one of them. But he was one of them, right? So yeah. I don't want to say it's a new wave. It's more like new wave adjacent, but it definitely has a little bit of that vibe. And it's just lyrically, it's a great song. It's catchy. And it continues to show how he's able to continue to evolve. Evolving, but let's face it, right? He's, he's good at ripping off, right? Like latching well, on to movements. Yeah. Call it assimilating current trends. How about there you that? go. That's a nicer way of saying it. Fine. Say it however you want. But particularly, I think, in this incarnation of, of him, right? Where, like I mentioned at the beginning, right? We, we've got trends that bands are sort of uh, jumping onto in, in this sort of time frame. And, and Bowie was, you know, what we almost expected of him. This is the greatest sequel song in rock history. Like you said, there is kind of a new wave vibe to it. There's some low-key funk as well. It's got those synths, right? And the synthesizers have a very eerie sound. It's also got one of Bowie's best vocals, right? This is a very moving and haunting performance. You're kind of gutted by the sad plight of poor old Major Tom. Major Tom really has not had a good gal. Maybe yeah. he should have stayed out there, man. <laughs> or never gone up. Yeah. Bottom line, it's a legendary song from a legendary artist. To me, it's a top five Bowie song and definitely his best song of the 80s. If we don't count on depression. Ooh, I haven't thought of that. His greatest solo song of the 80s, we'll say. All right. I kind of know what I want to pick, but I really want to pick another song, too. And I don't know if one of you guys, I'm going to, I may just have to cross my fingers and hope and go with the song that I think one of you will pick and hope that you don't pick the other song. Ooh, I thought Keith was all over this one. That was your next pick, wasn't it? Yeah.
That was a forest by the cure off of 17 seconds and you guys both know i love my moody atmospheric dark songs and this is both moody and atmospheric and a little new wavy right so you've got like atmospheric rhythm and the drumming or drum machine but i'm pretty sure it's actual drumming is definitely moody and driving you got robert smith sort of opaque but as always you know trying to find the girl like dark and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on and running through misty trees and such. But then you got a little bit of like a new wavy keyboard going on, which for me, it's like, it's like music Nirvana, right? New wave, moody, atmospheric, the cure. It's like a perfect me song. So that's why earlier when we were talking about picks, like I thought for sure you guys would peg me as this being one of my picks. I didn't just know the board was going to fall this way. The only reason I didn't is because I know how much Keith loves his song. And we often talk about how songs have a vibe. And man, does this song have a vibe, right? Such a vibe. To me, it's the best early Cure song. And not everyone agrees with this, but I don't think that the Cure peaked until the mid-80s. When Robert Smith became more of a pop songwriter and the band fleshed out their sound, peaking, of course, with Disintegration in 1989. But they were a very good band right from the get-go. We had Boys Don't Cry in 1979, and those early albums did have this memorably spare sound and a certain moodiness to them, and as far as this may be the best example of that early Cure sound. Yeah, and, and it's such a fitting, to me, the, the song title and the mood and the vibe, yeah, it's such the fitting. Like, I do picture a misty forest as he's searching for the girl, and the album cover of 17 Seconds is basically that, which makes it even better. I agree. I think The Cure peaked in the mid-80s, so like early 90s. Yeah. But it was like a... They got nuggets. They got some... Yeah. The late 70s and early 80s stuff is great. And I always get confused with some of their early albums as to what's on which album, unless I'm actually sitting down to listen to it. And I think also part of that is because like the UK and US versions were different and sometimes mixed songs together. But and compilation. And compilations, yeah. Yeah, like Staring at the Sea. And Boys Don't Cry was a US only album. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of really good stuff. And this is still their, like, post-punk goth Yeah, This is still that. They're still figuring it out, right? It's, 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 this is the Joy Division episode. I, I have to sort of reference the fact that, and maybe because, like, we, we hear the influence that Atmosphere had on, you know, on, on, you know certain Cure songs. But they were contemporaries. And, and again, they're, they're coming out with material that's sort of, you know, a similar, a similar vibe, but sort of at the same, you know, at the same time. A scene influencing, you know, sort of feeding on, on itself. 
again, I, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, how, you know, how we missed out on sort of, you know, that, that rival, what could have been a rivalry, right? Mm. You, you think of the Cure and the Smiths, yeah. like more, more in the late eighties, but, you know, um, but this, this didn't materialize that way. And to be clear, when we were referencing a later song when we were talking about Joy Division, this is the one we were all thinking uh, of, right? Uh, yeah, very much Movie so. atmospheric story. <laughs> yeah. Did not imagine my draft going like this. Like this is a, this is a pretty solid draft so far. Sometimes you gotta throw your draft board out the window, right? Yeah. Well, no, this is, this is all positive. This is like when somebody slips, you know? Like when Aaron Rodgers, yeah, 20th, <laughs> 25th, whatever. You're like, what? How is he still available? Yeah. Well, the songs that were picked weren't exactly slashes. That's why. Yeah. No, no. I again, like, just a very, very strong draft, and lots of really good songs to come. I think when we did our 1980 song tournament, we had more songs from 1980 than any other. I think, I'm almost positive we did. And hopefully, we're not regurgitating too many of the same talking points. I don't think we are, and nobody remembers anyway. No one should remember. I don't think we picked the forest though. No, we didn't, because we picked pictures of you. That's why. I think we had a one song per band rule. Yeah, we did. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to seeing how the rest of this draft falls. There will be more twists and turns to come. Nice. Boys are back. Minus one, plus one. (laughs) It's a good way to look at it. You stole my next pick. Really? Really. I had this as a pick by one of you, but I had it a little bit later. I'm not surprised. I'm just surprised maybe at the timing. The world is full of kings and queens who blind your eyes and steal your dreams. Given the Ronnie devil horns. Fucking James Dio with the devil horns. I don't know. Is it Sabbath? Is it Dio? It's Sabbath Dio. 
It's a little uh, both. Yeah, it's both. Seven and uh, a half. Uh, uh, yeah. Debut. Talk about sending a message, like, right away, right? Like, the sound. Like, taking the sound of, of Sabbath, but sort of making it your own. Fucking awesome. Just an awesome, awesome song. Again, like, decade after they came onto the scene and still being fresh and awesome. You'll be short-lived with Ronnie at the helm, but they had some bangers on the on the album, and and that's sort of the, uh, to me, that's the centerpiece of it. Fucking great metal, right? Great freaking metal from 1980. Yeah, sometimes when you place a lead singer, it's not such a bad thing when that replacement is Ronnie fucking James Dio. <laughs> Maybe the greatest heavy metal singer of all time, and he adds that fantastical element that he brought to Rainbow as well. And this song just has that classic mid-tempo chug, the catchy on and on chorus, and then there's that spectacular jam section, which of course we played. The album was phenomenal, like you said. Other classic songs like Neon Nights, Children of the Sea, Die Young, Lonely is the Word, and the next album, The Mob Rules, was great also. So this was definitely a shot in the arm to one of the greatest bands of all time. And one of their greatest albums. I think it's right up there with anything they did with Ozzy. And of course, Ozzy himself delivered a classic debut album of his own in 1980 as well. So win-win. Oh, boy. This is just a ridiculously epic year. I'm not at all surprised. Like I said, I thought maybe you would go a little bit lower, but not at all surprised. Like I said, it was my next pick. All right, well, you got plenty of other great songs to pick. Actually, there was a song ahead of it. I'm sorry. It would have been my second pick, but I have two picks coming up. So we talked about this next song before in our 80-song tournament, but I have to draft it again. It's just too damn good not to. We were recently hanging out, and this song came on. And one of these guys, I think it was Larry, he asked me if I was going to draft it. And I answered you, damn right I'm going to. (laughs) This is their best song, right? It's one of them. It's way up there. There's others in the mix. There's there's definitely one other. Well, we'll talk about that after we play it. All right, fair enough. Bring back, we played one Rush song already. No, we played two. We played Working Man in 2112. All right, all right. We just gave it away, so we might as well talk about it. And I would say those two... And some songs coming up on their next album or in yeah. the running as well. Yeah, they're in the running. No. This is the one that I'm turning up the most. And if you're like a total prog nerd, you got La Via Strangiato and some other songs <laughs> too. <laughs>
was the spirit of radio by Rush. There's so much to this song that makes Rush great. You have some all-time memorable riffs by Alex Lifeson, which gets the song off and running. The song is heavy, powerful, and flashy, yet also melodic. Neil Peart shows why many people consider him to be the greatest rock drummer ever throughout the song. The lyrics are great, especially the all this machinery making modern music stanza, which we played in the clip and which is among my all-time favorite verses. The song is a cynical look at the music industry that also provides an uplifting message about the power of music. And toward the end of the song, there's that little reggae-like bridge that shows the influence of the police, followed by Alex's amazing lightning-fast shred solo and finally explosive slam-bang finale. What a finish. Just fantastic. This is when Rush was still heavy and progressive, but they were also becoming more song-oriented and radio-friendly. And Permanent Waves was a great, if somewhat short, album that contained other excellent songs like Free Will, Jacob's Ladder, and Natural Science. I mean, I kind of gave it away in the beginning, saying I think this is probably my favorite Rush song or their best Rush song. I actually think I need to qualify that because it's a little different in that it's not proggy, it's not as long, right? It's much more of a, like, AOR-type song. Earlier, though, I was referencing... The dichotomy that a lot of songs in 1980, or at least a lot of songs in 1980 that I picked, had between what it sounds like and what it's talking about. And you hit it, Scott. Like, this is sort of a cynical view of corporate music and radio and what it means to get played. But yet, it's a great sing-along. It sounds like an uplifting song, right? It sounds like it's a kick-ass, catchy song. But it's got that deeper, proggy, still metal, still great unbelievable drumming like you said i mean it's just such a great exposition of like their musicianship but yet it's a little darker than it sounds like a lot of people listen to music and they just listen they don't necessarily listen to the lyrics they just sort of like get the vibe of what the song and the vibe is you know more uplifting right but it's a little darker than that which makes it even better you know i kind of hedged my bets before but yeah this is the best rush song i agree i just have to add that Spirit Radio was on the Flowman Epic Party playlist from like 1987. Yeah, uh, we've mentioned this previously. <laughs> it was at every high school party, and this was prominent on it. Do you guys actually remember the entire Flowman Epic Party playlist? No, no, Kevin? but like when the songs come on, they kind of remind. I mean, you I guys need to recreate it. Need to recreate it. I mean, we got Labor Day weekend coming up. Let's be, clear. Let's be clear also, this was my tape, not you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely try to recreate it. I'll create you it. You got to recreate it. Keith and I will put our heads together and figure this out. Yeah. All right, so we're done with Rush? Yeah, you got doubles now. All right, so this next one I think may surprise you guys. Nothing surprises us, unless you're picking a French song. Actually... If you picked a French song or if you picked a hip-hop song, that would surprise me. Yeah, that would be pretty shocking. That's not where I'm going. Okay. I'm going to quote a lyric to this next song. Okay. And the eyes of the world are watching now. I mean, I got it off the lyric. That's that's good. I did have this as one of your picks. Here's my next pick. Really? Nice. I feel good about that. <laughs> Anytime we could fuck each other over, we're happy. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't do that enough, actually. Well, it's never intentional. 
Well. by Peter Gabriel, the best song on Peter Gabriel's best album, Peter Gabriel or Peter Gabriel or Melt as it's often called. (laughs) The epic seven and a half minute finale, Biko, is an incredibly powerful. That is is epic. That is epic. I gotta say. Have either of you guys ever seen Peter Gabriel live? No. So I was gonna get to the best version of this song actually is the one from the conspiracy of hope concert in 1986 i think it was which is on youtube and spotify and i just remember watching it when it was on tv and just being completely mesmerized by that performance i've never seen him live but that performance sticks out to me i was thinking of even drafting it in 1986 but this version is great also i've seen him live at least twice both times though he closes with Biko. And I would say the last, like, four minutes of the song, he doesn't have to sing. Sing along. It's just the crowd, right? The entire yeah. crowd is singing. Yeah. I don't know if it would have the same resonance now, but when I saw him the first time, like, South Africa had essentially only just been liberated, like, in the last, yeah. like, three years. And for those who don't know, Stephen Biko was an activist fighting against apartheid who was killed in prison by South African guards. So this is a protest song. It was very raw and still like very topical at the time. And so it was overwhelming the first time that I was there. I can't even describe it. It's one of the most epic concert experiences I've ever had because you have an entire audience singing along. He's no longer singing. Everyone knows all the lyrics, but it had much more spiritual resonance because it was so new and it was still like so topical and everyone knew it was so raw and emotional it was unbelievable so everybody knew oh 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 
Yep. Yeah, didn't know that part. That's a sing-along, man. The lyrics hit hard, right? But yeah. the music, too, right? You have these dense synthesizers, which were definitely cutting edge. You have booming drums, very 80s, but very ahead of their time in a way as well. We mentioned world music. You have the bagpipes and the exotic world music-based instrumentation and the grunts, right, which kind of just add to the overall ambience. So... <laughs> When incredible, innovative music is matched to lyrics that tell an important story, it's just an incredible combination, which is what we have here, which makes Biko a legendary song. And just a shout out to Games Without Frontiers, another signature Gabriel song featuring Kate Bush on backing vocals. Uh, But the whole album is fantastic. Easily my favorite Peter Gabriel album, although he would have bigger commercial successes in his future. Yeah, I feel like Peter Gabriel might show up. Again, later in the 80s. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm up. Mm-hmm. All right. I got a song teed up now from a band that I have to think was influenced by Biko at some point. Probably starting in 1980. They would go on to greatness from here. Next up is, again, I referenced um, probably some influence from Peter Gabriel and Biko into their future, but... In the present, there's sort of still this underground, up-and-coming force that you take notice of what, what these guys are doing. The version we're going to play is from 1983's Under the Blood Red Sky live version. Sort of the, the next level of the studio version of the song, and it is fucking awesome. Did the right call. I will. Yeah, that's the definitive version of that song for sure. Usually we don't do this. We pick the live version in the year that it was recorded. But the reason we didn't is because you two have some other pretty good songs in 1983 that we think will take precedence over this. So we decided to make an exception, play the 83 song in 80. The 83 live version of the studio song that came out in 80. You two making waves as an underground band with an edge back then no pun intended slightly intended they would uh they certainly lost that edge along the way many years later they had a pretty good run absolutely no no, absolutely absolutely. well they softened the edges 
through the 80s into the 90s, and then they lost it at some point. But there's punk to this version of, of U2, an Irish band in that time with a political, you know, political messages. They were a up-and-coming band to be reckoned with. Absolutely. And a couple of things on that. So they were definitely a post-punk band when they started out, a band with a very political message and political overtones coming from Ireland in the 80s. Their message was not like many of the other messages going on in Ireland and Northern Ireland, because this was in the height of the troubles. And their message was around unity and peace and anti-violence. And, you know, that will come up again and again through the 80s, because this is definitively not the last time we're going to be hearing from you two in our podcast. Scott, you had made a prediction as to the artist that will, at least in the 1980s, have the most songs. I think that artist might come up later, but this is definitely a contender for probably the yeah, top. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's artists and bands, right? If you talk yeah. about the band of the 80s, it's definitely you too. Without a doubt. Yeah. And this was them early on. They were raw. Like you said, they had that post-punk influence. You could tell they were going places. They were a great live band. People forget what a great live band they were. And you heard it here, right? The passion. Above all else, there's the passion, right? It's just undeniable. And the Edge and Bono, what a combo, right? And one of the distinctive sounds in rock, right? I mean, we've talked before about guitarists or, or any really instrumentalist where when you hear them, whether they're, it's their own band or whether it's, yeah. you know, exactly who it is. The Edge has an extraordinarily distinctive sound. He does, and Bono's one of the all-time greatest singers, regardless of what you think about him. Yeah, he could be overbearing. I think it's hard. It's in the right place, personally. And I do, too. The band and, and talking about them live, so I know, I get that sort of Queen came away from Live Aid as a show stealer. I remember... The next day, talking about you two. Yeah, it was Queen and you two. It was Queen and you two. Totally. Yeah. Agree. Totally. Yeah, agree. yeah that kind of set them on the path to that next level, which exploded. With I can watch. I can again. I can watch that. Um, that set and get teary eyed just from like, like the the emotion from the song itself, but just the scene, right? Like, yeah. And again, it, it comes back to that passion, right? And Boy was a really good debut album. I want to do a shout-out to Ancop Dub, which directly and seamlessly leads to Into the Heart, another great two-for-one potential entry. You had The Electric Co., which is also on Under a Blood Red Sky, Stories for Boys. A really, really good first album, though they would definitely do even better albums going forward as the band of the decade. And fittingly appearing in 1980 because they were on the verge of world domination. So good. And still, I was a little too young to go see them on the boy tour, like way too young, but best concert I still have ever seen was U2. Joshua Tree Tour, Boston Garden, Floor Seats. Yeah, and I'm sure many people would say the same thing. Yeah, they were just at the height of their craft at that point. It was beyond belief. We saw the Joshua Tree Tour as well. Yeah, in the Meadowlands, yeah. Great concert. Yeah. All right. Larry, you up? I am. Holiday weekend coming up. In a very ill-advised vacation spot. That would be a very important <laughs> vacation spot. 
I, you know what? Actually, I think right now it's considered to be not a bad vacation spot. But in 1980, not a great place to go on vacation. I, I, it's it's in there. I, I, I actually, I don't know which two songs I'm going to pick right now. I've got several. I can go in so many different directions right now. I could go funk. I could go new wave. I could go post-punk. I could go hard rock. I could go disco. Classic rock. Could go classic rock. We're going thrash. We're going thrash. I could go thrash. Thrash wasn't invented yet. Well, I could go hardcore. There's so many ways I could go. So, just in the spirit of mixing it up, because I still have two, because I got two picks, so I can always got to mix it up. I'm mixing it up, man. I sense the purple one. That would be a very solid guess. Did I not say Larry was predictable? You <laughs> said it a few times, man. <laughs> You know, I don't care that you say unpredictable. How can you not pick Prince? Not a bad thing. You like what you like. Prince is one of the dominant forces of the 1980s, right? Prince is literally undefinable. So what kind of a song was that? Tell me the genre of that song. Prince. Prince. Right, exactly. Because it's a little funk. It's a little new wave. And this is why I said at the beginning, right? We, we can stay our lanes and have five songs right off the bat and, and obviously Prince fits right into your audience. Absolutely. This is hits so many of the genres that I love, right? So again, Prince probably is his own genre because this, it's a new wave song. It's also a funk song. It's got funk beats. It's also got lyrics that are uniquely Prince, right? You've like, you literally have no idea what's going on in the song. Is he in a threesome? Is it a girl? Is it a guy? Like it's sort of androgynous. What's going on? Does it even matter? All of those things can be true and not true at the same time. And that's what makes Prince Prince, right? It just, it doesn't matter. It's just all about the vibe. It's all about the sound. I'm pretty sure Prince had his share of threesomes. I'm pretty sure that Prince had his share of the album is Here's called it. Dirty Mind, right? And Which also was on my list. Like, Dirty Mind is also a great song. 
And that album, Raunchy, doesn't even begin to describe it. But man, is it a lot of fun, right? Oh, it's a great album. And and it's 1980. And, and it's funny. Like, I feel like right now, everyone's sort of a nerd to you. Pretty raunchy lyrics, cursing, explicit, implicit, sexual overtones. That's not exactly the case in 1980. I mean, were there songs that talked about sex obliquely or implicitly? Yes, absolutely. But this is this is pretty out there. Prince is totally unique. And we talked about it before. Prince, above all, is a musician's musician. Like, he was a multi-instrumentalist. He could play multiple instruments extremely well. And he knew how to craft a song. He could play every instrument. And he had multiple voices, too. He had, like, very different vocal personas. Yeah, I mean, you've got in this one song, you've got him singing his normal cadence, you've got his falsetto, and you've got when he goes a little bit deeper, like a few octaves lower, right? It's just, he is unique. I prefer Prince in guitar god mode rather than dinky keyboards mode, right? But this is still a classic pop tune, of course, covered by Sidney Lauper as well. And really as well. That increased the profile of this song, I think, her cover of it. That's why I mention it. That's fair. Billy Prince on his journey to challenge Michael as yeah. the kings of what they were doing. Don't forget the Queen, Madonna. Queen came a little yeah, she she came a little later. This was before Prince was a superstar. This is Yeah. That's no, that's what and I mean. He was like ascending. He's, he's building towards what he would become. It was it was you know, it was a natural sort of progression for him. He was a clear genius who just needed to get that swell until he was making fucking movies. And I love you more than when you were mine, right, Larry? Yep. All right, I promise I'm not picking this song because of any peer pressure. This was on my list as number four, but the way that the whole, like, list broke, the song I'm going to pick next, another band in transition... Another band with a new vocalist. New statement. The old vocalist died. Is that giving away for you? But we still don't know which one you're picking. Which song? Gotta go with my heart. Yeah. So there are definitely some other parts of the song that I could have played, but the beginning is so iconic. You hear the drum, you hear the hi-hat, you're like, all right, I know, I know it's, I know it's about to happen right now. I know it's going to. And by the way, I've talked a few times on a couple of different podcasts about sequencing. 
I love this album. The sequencing is all wrong. This should open up the album. Back in the day when you had a record, you just played side two first. I, yeah, but I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so fair enough. This opened up side two, but that's, I guess, the point, though, is that it's like reverse. Like, Hell's Bells, which is the opener on side A, I should, agree. should close the album. Back in Black should should kick off the album. Back in Black definitely should have been the album opener. Followed by <laughs> it took me all night long. Yeah, the sequencing is not right. Yeah, but it's still an awesome A plus album. No argument there. Absolutely, I'm just saying. Like it's it's a little, you know, we should redo it like we did Melancholy. Back in Black, every track is worthy. Yeah, Happy Trick on Me was one of my favorites back in the day. Yeah, my wife just got a shirt, ACDC. Front, you shook me all night long. Back, have a drink on me. I've nice. really been so proud. That's 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 impressive. I was slightly worried you're going to tell us that Leanne got it that said "Back in Black" and then on the back it said "Give him the dog a bone." But you know. <laughs> <laughs> lots of people today buy rock shirts from the seventies and eighties and have no idea who was on it. So that is that is. Uh, we'll give Leanne the benefit of the doubt. Back in Black is one of the best-selling albums ever. It's probably the best-selling hard rock album of all time. Looking on Spotify, the lowest number of plays for any song on Back in Black is almost 19 million plays. That shows how popular this album was. You think Back in Black more than Appetite? I'm pretty sure Back in Black is a higher seller than Appetite. Yeah. I would think so. I've kind of gone over this in prior podcasts, how back in the day, You Shook Me All Night Long was the song from ACDC and Back in Black, but I think over the years that has kind of morphed into Back in Black being the ACDC song. Back in the day, You Shook Me On The Line was a bigger hit, the song you heard on the radio, the song that jump-started any party. Now, with pop culture and it being in movies like Iron Man, and just, I think it's shifted since then, right? Well, I think that's partially because You Shook Me All Night Long is more of a sing-along. Back in Black is not a sing-along. It's just a kick-ass. It's a badass motherfucking song. Yeah. I was debating myself this afternoon whether to play the ending outro solo, which is great. Yeah. But then I kept coming back. It has to be that iconic intro. The intro is, the intro is it's beyond. It's so good. Just also, I just, I mean, we, we talked about it in the beginning, but it, it is important to note, right? This is their first song after Bond died. And what a way to make a statement that as much as they were mourning that Bond was gone, this was right after like their first major international success. And what a way to really double down on that and kick ass and make a statement that yes, that's a terrible tragedy. We're still fucking awesome. We're still going to rock it out and kick ass. That's why Back in Black should have been the opening song. I agree with that, but it was sort of the beginning of the end as well. That's kind of harsh. I don't know. That, that. That, 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 I, 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 I believe it to be true. For those about they, The Rock, was a very good album. They had good. other good they, albums they like had a, The Razor's they had a, Edge. They had a growth progression, right? And then they went from Highway to Hell to Back in Black. And the progression stopped there, right? That's fair. The curve, the progression stopped. Yeah, but they curve. still had good tunes they thereafter. Curve, they were on their curve stopped. They curve was on the downside. I so. think Bond added something to the band. His cleverness as a lyricist. They were more punk with Bond, more rock and roll. They were more metal with Brian. But Brian Johnson in the early eighties was a fucking awesome singer. Oh yeah. And I think he lost his voice later on. Also, no, he did. I saw Brian Johnson in like. 
the two th- I, I've seen ACDC, I think, three times, but I saw Brian Johnson solo at a small club in the city. It was a great show, but his voice was gone. Like the mid-80s is when it started. It was kind of garbled. It still is distinctive, but it wasn't like back in black. You're like, holy shit, this guy's oh, awesome, yeah. awesome singer. He kind of lost that maybe a couple albums later, but you can't discount what they accomplished with Back in Black. It's maybe yeah. their greatest album. It's their signature album. When you think ACDC, you think Back in Black. And it's the number one selling hard rock album of all time. Yeah, there you go. All right. So I picked one of the songs that I think we all said should get picked. One of the UC Jokers needs to pick the next one. Bye, Keith. Do the right thing. The next pick. So I think you're asking me to do something that I may not want to do. That's okay. I'm not, I mean, you know, I don't want to pressure you. How can you not want to pick this song? That's what I don't understand. Well, you have a chance to pick it too. I yeah. will if he doesn't, but he should. Hey, you know what? Into the breaks. <laughs> break it up, break it up, break it up. Break down. I have three songs. Are you cutting out Bass of Spades? Maybe. I have uh, two other songs that you don't know I'm going to pick. One of them is Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I was going to pick that song. Great song, but there's a better song on that album. Mm, I don't think so. The other song is by a guy who had a hit single in 1995. But his band in 1980. No, that's not the right pick. I know the band <laughs> you're talking about, but... I, I have to think about that one. I don't think I know that. You're, you're, you're talking about Orange Juice and Edwin Collins, but... Oh, the 95 is a solid song. Blue Boy is a great... Is yeah, a great... but there's better songs. Yeah, you, and and bigger songs. You can do it once, but it's the wrong pick. <laughs> I fucking play Ace You get very judgy towards the end of the podcast. Exactly. Play Ace of Spades, I don't, su- I don't support it. <laughs> I, I I didn't realize that this was like a republic. That's all I know. <laughs> play the space and then play Blue Boy by. Uh... Uh, fair enough.
done. Well done. <laughs> you approve of Keith's pick. Yeah, exactly. I got peer pressured into a song that could have been in the first round anyway. I mean, it's not like we made you pick a song you don't like. No, no. I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on Ace of Spades. It's fucking awesome. Like Scott said, right, it's before Thrash even existed, but it's Thrash, right? It's, it's like, Thrashy. As speed, it's thrash, it's fucking metal, it's rock and roll, right? As you know, Lemmy is God, he's awesome. And Ace of Spades will go down forever. Like, again, he was a, the guy was a fucking roadie and he built a band. And there's a great song on the Ace of Spades album called We Are the Road Crew, which yep. is a tribute to his roadies. That's a cool dude right there, man. That's gonna be great. Like Lemmy was a very cool guy, yeah. And let's not sell short. Phil, filthy animal Taylor and fast Eddie Clark. They did their part. They, they shred. The song is a shredder, man. They play fast. They play hard. Also, shout out to Hawkwind. Hawkwind's a great band. Absolutely. And yes. Lemmy was in the early incarnation of that band. You know why they kicked him out of the band, right? Because he was a mess? Because he was a speed freak and the rest of them were heroin addicts. He did the wrong drugs. So they were incompatible. Okay, I get it. You gotta read his autobiography. The chapters about Hawkman are so hilarious. But yeah, they were a cool band, way, way ahead of their time. We talk about heavy psych rock, stoner rock. Hawkman is like spacey prog rock. So heavy for their era, man. Yeah. Very cool. A live ritual. Fantastic live album. That was the first Hawkman album I ever heard. And I'm like, yeah, that's the best starting point for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great stuff. Motorhead has a lot of great tunes. To me, they're like the ultimate band for a pure adrenaline rush, right? You're at the gym. You want to do that extra set. Motorhead will push you over that edge. And if there is one Motorhead song that is the Motorhead song, it's Ace of Spades for sure. Well, I feel like Ace of Spades is the one song that people who don't even know, like you may not even know that Motorhead sings Ace of Spades, but you know the song, right? Yeah, it's the one Motorhead song that went beyond Motorhead and yeah. metal. And lyrically, he's very clever, right? That's kind yeah. of overlooked funny. as well. It's funny. Don't forget the Joker. Don't forget that Joker. What a song, man. All right, well, you got two more picks. Or no, do you have one more pick? I think I have one more pick. You have one All more right. pick? Oh, yeah, you're I'm the last pick. As I said before about Rush, we talked about this next song before in our ED song tournament. But I have to draft it again. It's just too damn good not to. When we were kids, girl, it looked so pretty to me. Like it always did. Like the Spanish city too. When I was kids.
That was Tunnel of Love by Dire Straits. We kind of argued earlier about the merits of Tunnel of Love versus Romeo and Juliet. Both are amazing songs. Dire Straits blew up and probably big with their massive Brothers in Arms album in 1985, in large part due to some creative music videos that were aired endlessly on MTV. But to me, the best album they ever did was 1980s Making Movies. And the best song they ever did was its lead-off track, Tunnel of Love. The song is beautiful, bittersweet, and also pretty hard-rocking at times. There are tons of great musical moments, and the closing solo is among the best ever, in my opinion. Mark Knopfler is one of my favorite guitar players, and man, oh man, does he nail this one. It's so lyrical and pretty. And Roy, the professor at time from the E Street Band, lends some pretty piano as well. And the album on the whole is Dire Straits' most Springsteen-like album. And I got to say, it really paid me not to draft The River by Bruce Springsteen. But at least I drafted a very Bruce-like song instead. The River hits harder lyrically, but to me, Tunnel of Love easily wins musically, of course, to compare. Tunnel of Love is one of those songs that you'll find live versions where they just crush it probably better than on the studio version. Yeah, the Alchemy Live album. That's a phenomenal version. I mean, Juliet hits a little differently to me, you know, sort of as a, an emotional impact song, but it doesn't have the same sort of instrumentation that Tunnel has. I could go either way, but Tunnel is a spectacular exhibit for why Dire Straits was as good as they were. My opinion is that Romeo and Juliet isn't as musically appealing. But it has some of the best storyteller-based lyrics ever. It's just one of the most lyrically moving songs. Yeah, ever. to me, it, it hits hard, right? It's one of those, again, sort of my my sweet spot versus your yeah, sweet spot. Yeah. It's like it, it hits a little bit harder, different. Uh, and the cover by the Indigo Girls is incredible as well. I don't know if you know that one. I don't think I know that one. It's, is more of a music nerds band than an appreciated band. You don't hear a lot of Dire Straits on like classic rock radio anymore. But even back in the day when classic rock radio was more prevalent, there were only a few songs you would hear from Dire Straits, right? Brothers in Arms was like an anomaly, right? That was like a fluke because of the video. Yeah. 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 Because before Brothers in Arms, most people probably knew Sultan's a Swing, and that's it from Dire Straits. A lot of their great songs, you have to go kind of deep in their catalog or deep into certain albums to find. You have to remember... Back in, like, the early 80s, it's not like you could just queue up making movies and listen to all the tracks. You had to go buy the album or find somebody who had the album unless you heard it on the radio. And you wouldn't hear these songs on the radio. So that's why I'm saying, like, it was a more of – I remember I had a few friends who were really into Dire Straits and a couple of people who introduced me to them. But until um, Brothers in Arms and Money for Nothing, other than Soul and Swing, I'd never heard of them. Like, I'd never heard any of their songs before. They just weren't that played. And I still feel like – because of that, they're slightly underappreciated. Knopfler is guitar god. He's phenomenal. But he's a little understated, right? Also a great songwriter. Great songwriter. But but in, from like a, a guitar god standpoint, technically he's a really great guitarist. But it doesn't hit you in the face like some of the guitarists that we think of as the best guitarists of all time. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying it's a different style, right? It's He's more of a technically great guitarist and you have to like get into it to really appreciate it so i'm glad that you played it i did have both of these songs on the scott list i think this is probably the better pick the river's kind of a downer to end the podcast on or at least end the main part of the podcast on 
It's a great song. Lyrics are great. But when I was going through my 80s lists and the river would come up, I would skip it. <laughs> it's such a great song, but I guess none of us could quite pull the trigger. We didn't want to get bummed out. Yeah. I didn't want to get bummed out. Orange Juice. I mean, uh, Blue Boy, 102. And then Larry's outro. even know what we call that because it's not an outro it's like an extra it's like a bonus and you hear the like the jangle popping like that's very jangle i love that song it's it just makes you feel good so i'm taking this out take me out sometimes you get to play the songs you want sometimes you don't but you know what those are the breaks Cause I'm Curtis Blow and I want you to know that these are the boys. Breaks in a box, breaks on the car, breaks to make you a superstar. Breaks to win and breaks to lose. The breeze will break to wrap your shoes and these are the boys. Break it up, break it up, break it up. Eighteen phone calls to Brazil, but you know what? If he's going to throw in an extra song, I'm going to have a double outro. So that was the breaks by Curtis Blow, one of the first relatively successful hip hop songs. Also, unbeknownst to most people, because everyone's like that funky rhythm, right? Right? That's got to be a sample. It's not. They actually created it for the breaks. But for my second outro, I am going to play a song that has been famously sampled. There's also two mixes of this song. There's the original mix, and then there's the second mix. The second mix is the one that most people know, but the original mix is better. I know this. I can't think of it. And one last hint. We talked about distinctive sounds. This is another artist who, as soon as you hear his sound, you know it's him playing. <laughs>
So, of course, that was I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross, but that's the original mix by Schick, which was Nile Rodgers, and there was a lot of controversy as to which was the right mix. It was not the mix that was eventually released and became super popular, but it is a little funkier. The voice is a little lower in the mix. The guitar and bass is a little higher in the mix. That's the key right there. The voice was a little lower in the mix. Diana wasn't happy about it. Yep. We had her producers remix it, move her voice up in the mix, and that's a version that everybody is more familiar with. And what's interesting about this song is it was her basically singing on top of Nile Rodgers, Bernard Edwards, and Sheik, their music. And another song in 1980 where that happened was Giorgio Moroder. Yep. Basically created the music that Debbie Harry then wrote lyrics to. It was not really a Blondie song. It was really a Giorgio Moroder. And Debbie Harry song with the mustache. With the greatest yeah. mustache of all time. Yeah.